We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Brody! It's a monster test. It's important, okay? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor, and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 186. Here's a Boo Crew Fright Fact. In 2001, ones the others nicole kidman actually quit during rehearsals as playing grace gave her extremely bad nightmares if you aren't already head to apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button if you like what you're hearing it helps us so much another thing that we love is when you not only rate the show but write a quick review tell us about yourself how you discovered the boo crew it helps us connect even more with you and lets you be a part of it as we love to hear ideas and what you think and we will read your review at the top of the show there are none to read this week because we are all cut up we've literally plateaued <laughs> yeah so bring it on and be a boo crew hero <laughs> boo crew hero i usually yeah. throw to leo now who reads a review and then lauren reads a review so now what do we do <laughs> Leo, VHS horror movie with the best cover art that you remember from your childhood right off the top of your head. It's going to probably be Videodrome. Wow. Nice. The hand coming out of the TV, something like that. How about you, Lauren? Do you remember one from the video store? I used to love the April Fool's Day one with the hair that was a noose. Oh, yeah. I used to always be like, I want my hair to grow that long and be like that amazing. I don't think I wanted to make a noose, but it was like total Rapunzel vibes right there. Did you ever rent it? No. <laughs> Too scary. I was like, hell no. <laughs> that shit happens right there. I'm not. No. For me, probably Slumber Party Massacre 2. You know, the one with the red guitar with the drill bit on the end. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching that the other night. Well, random. Wow. It was on. It was on TV. I was like, whoa. Well, we're taking a trip to the video store today. Very suitable, as this time around, a film that had its heyday on the video shelves, 1987's Monster Squad, directed by Fred Decker, the genius behind House and House 2, Night of the Creeps, and more, teamed up with writer Shane Black, who created Lethal Weapon and The Nice Guys, went on to 2018's The Predator and more. It's a formative gateway horror film that retains its danger pitting a group of kids against the classic Universal Monsters. We are joined by one of its stars, the leader of the squad, Andre Gower. He has created a new documentary about the resurgence of the film and the lifetimes of connections it has made with its fans called Wolfman's Got Nards. It's available now on VOD. This very unique legacy and relationships are explored alongside the film's cast and crew and the creators and people that it has inspired. We'll get into how it came to be, what this means for the future of the Monster Squad, where all the cool props went to. We'll crash a lunch with Ryan Gosling, hang out at Bly Manor with Mike Flanagan, and so much more. Episode 186 starts now. Trick or treat. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for... Ah! Horror 
are going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown. <laughs> they each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit starting as usual with the incredibly creepy Leo. Greetings, you freaks and ghouls. <laughs> have you guys seen anything for Jackson? Yes! Yes, we have. We did, actually. <laughs> nice. Finally, ding, ding, ding. Got right, one. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we got one! Yeah, I just saw that just came out like december 3rd it's, it's, it's brand new man it's on shutter directed by justin g dyke written by keith cooper and it uh it's got a really good cast a really solid cast of leads there with sheila mccarthy uh playing audrey walsh julian richens as henry walsh the husband who's also um OBGYN doctor and constantina mantemos as shannon becker the pregnant woman the simple plot for this movie is after losing their grandson in a car accident Grief-stricken Audrey, played by Sheila, and Henry, played by Julian, a uh, OBGYN doctor, kidnaps his pregnant patient with the intentions of performing a reverse exorcism, putting Jackson, the spirit of the dead grandson, inside her unborn child. Like I do, like I said it before, I'll say it again, old people are fucking creepy. (laughs) They sure are. In fact, the movie's tagline is... Fear your elders. This is one of those, as I always say, you know, show me something new. Show me something creepy, something nightmare-inducing, or an original concept. And that's what this one did. It's well-written. The dialogue between the elderly husband and wife is fun and unique at times. There are, li- there are times when the wife seems like aloof, like, you know, like, acting like, whatever, you know, life is glorious, whatever. And yes, she does something techy and evil. Like, right off the bat, she does something with the smartphone. You're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. The lead actor... The pregnant woman, she has to endure some pretty awful and traumatic things. She's played that character pretty perfectly, I would say. This movie's full of, like, random surprises. Did you guys get that feeling? Yeah, it was one of those things you didn't see what was coming around the corner, and you could not predict what way this was going to go. Within, like, the storytelling itself and how the movie is put together, you get some, some really crazy reveals and clues along the way, as well as some surprises. There's a lot of things that happen that you really don't expect or see coming. Yeah, there's just a lot of crazy stuff that happens, man. The cinematography is great. It's very well directed. It has some interesting camera shots. It's got really, it's one really cool like scene where it has a tracking shot in the middle of the house. I thought, wow. And I kept thinking, Who's, whose house is that? You know, where, where was this shot? You know, it's a really interesting uh, location for this movie. The pacing is great. It keeps you engaged from the very beginning. It gets going right away. Not to forget, it has quite a number of what the fuck moments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the snowblower. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll just say that. I'll put that out or the there. Police officer, uh, or the police officer, yeah. It, it seemed um, really cold there, too. Yeah, it did, right? And man, I have a phobia of uh, the dental cold. work. Oh, that's right. I knew that. And I, water. Yes, and water. water drowning and stuff. So, yeah. Because I, I used to play sports in my younger years, and, and you know, and I broke teeth and shit like that, you know? So, man, that one scene, you'll know when you get to it, it, it got to me. <laughs> I get that. Um, this movie has some really cool fun facts. So the house used for the majority of the movie was actually writer Keith Cooper's house. So I was really like, I was thinking, whose house is it? And this is like, it's really cool that it's the writer's house. And there were some scenes, however, some rooms that were filmed by director Justin Dyke's house. So it's like between them two, the whole movie is made in their homes, you know? I was up in Canada, um, right? 
Yes, I believe Ontario. Yeah, I think Windsor, Ontario. Apparently there's three hitting ghost scenes within the movie. I don't know if you guys heard about that. No. It's quite possible that no one has found them yet and, and pointed them out. So if you find them, make sure to tweet them out at director Justin Dykes at Justin G. Dyke, D-Y-C-K. Overall, I would say it's a great movie. I had a lot of fun with it, and I highly recommend it. Anything for Jackson is streaming now on Shudder. Check it out. Lauren and I checked out a movie on VOD from 2009. Came out on Halloween 2009, to be exact. It's a terrific Australian bloodbath of tension and unflinching brutality called The Loved Ones. Have you seen it? (laughs) No. Leo, you're going to love it, I think. Wow. Uh, It stars Xavier Samuel, who is in Twilight Eclipse and Fury. Robin McLeavy from the incredible, one of my faves, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And John Brumpton. It's the feature film debut from writer-director Sean Byrne, whose only other feature thus far is the equally jaw-dropping The Devil's Candy in 2015 with Ethan Embry, who you can hear on episode 181. Sean has demonstrated he is a true master of the genre, writing and directing both films. For the loved ones, he took home the People's Choice Award at TIFF's Midnight Madness and the Siren Award at London International. And the film is about a teenage boy who declines an invite to the high school dance and as a result sets off a chain of truly demented events. Let me say he should have just said yes. Yeah. Would have been a good up call. Much better. But who would have known? I loved it. I felt psychotic after seeing it. Like it was crazy. I was not bored for one second and the acting was really good and there was so much gore and I was I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next and I just couldn't believe what was happening on the screen. This one's going to have you at the edge of your seat. It definitely has elements of torture porn and they certainly have fun making you wince. Yep. By showing you every agonizing and gory unbelievable moment on screen, but it's Way more layered than that, with amazing performances by the three principal actors here, and an absolutely heart-wrenching backstory at the heart of it all that brings so much gravity to everything that's happening, and you find yourself caring about these characters so much so that you really are a part of this journey with them, making it thrilling. Now, Sean did this with The Devil's Candy as well. Every character has such rich motives that nothing is without purpose, so everything matters. It's also got terrific dark humor to it. It also did something which I love, weaponizes a song. Oh, gosh. By repurposing its context to fit the narratives of the film. This is Casey Chambers. Sounds like a beautiful song, Not Pretty Enough, was a massive hit for her. All right, once you see the loved ones, that song will haunt the shit out of you for the rest of your life. Oh, I love it. And out of context, I mean, that song was a number one hit originally written as a commentary on commercial radio not playing her music, even though she had proven herself as a performer. And when you take it into the context of the loved ones, oh my God. Yeah, you'll never hear it the same way again. I love that. I love when they do that. It makes me think of... um 
Johannes Roberts, uh, uh, The Strangers Pray at yes! Night. Yes! The, the Bonnie Tyler song, right? That's uh, right, over totally, the pool scene. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Totally oh yeah. my God, I love well, it. you're like, what does that song have to do with horror? And you're like, oh, no, that song's creepy for him. Right, now. exactly. Yeah, you hear it in the context <laughs> of a horror film. It's genius. I love it. I love yeah. it so much. So the director, uh, Sean Byrne, prepared Robin McLevy for the role of Lola by researching the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, and you will later find why that is important. I don't want to give it away, as well as watching Misery from 1990, Natural Born Killers in 1994, and the works of Quentin Tarantino. And the movie was filmed in only four weeks, which I think is really fast. And the character's name is Lola Stone, which is an anagram for Lost and Alone. Oh, very interesting. Oh. So according to a recent interview, Sean Byrne has three films currently in development. He's got an action film in the realm of Die Hard, a small town Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque slasher, and a serial killer thriller movie about the modern dating scene. And we can't wait to see all of them because they will all undoubtedly rule. At time of release, The Loved Ones is free on Pluto TV, also available on Amazon Prime, Apple Movies, and more. Hey, this is Andre Gower. Get in the goddamn club and listen to the Boo Crew. The first time I ever saw Monster Squad. I was at a sleepover party with a friend of mine. It was on HBO. Every time we go to the video store, that's what I'd rent. I even had a bootleg DVD. The word got out. Everything we had seen up till then had all been kid stuff, and this was the first taste of something dangerous. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning actor, writer, producer, and director. His debut role was in 1979 alongside Fred Astaire in The Man in the Santa Claus Suit. As a child, he appeared in the most famous TV shows in history. The Young and the Restless, St. Elsewhere, The A-Team, Highway to Heaven, Knight Rider, Knight Court, T.J. Hooker, The Twilight Zone, Remington Steele, Mr. Belvedere, nominated for a Young Artist Award for his work almost annually for a body of accomplishments that went on to include classics like Fathers and Sons and Valerie. Most recently, he continues his adventures and his gift for not only telling a story, but being a truly compassionate vessel through which to share the stories of others. Things like having created and co-hosted Short Ends, an online shorts festival, meeting and spreading the word of up-and-coming filmmakers. There was one entry into his resume in particular that, for whatever reason, captured lightning in a bottle, playing the role of Sean, the lead character in a film from 1987 called The Monster Squad, directed by Fred Decker, who gave us the incredible Night of the Creeps house and more, co-written with the iconic Shane Black, who conceived things like the Lethal Weapon franchise and Predator. The film came and went at the box office, but for the people who discovered it, it became a magical rite of passage, a thrilling secret to have all your own and a best friend. The mystique behind the resurgence of the film some 30 years later brought him and his friend Henry together on a poignant journey to not only tell its story, but the stories of the people who embraced it and the lives that it changed forever. We welcome the co-creator of the new documentary, Wolfman's Gottenards, Andre Gower. Yeah! By far the most badass <laughs> intro. I've, I'm just going to record that and like that's going to be my in, intro music. To like, I'm just going to go to a restaurant and play it. Like walk in. That's, that was. Uh, I don't even. I don't even know what to say there. That was. Uh, I want to meet that guy who you're talking about because he made it sound so much cooler. <laughs> well, thank you again for being here and congratulations on the documentary. 
And thanks yeah. for being part of our childhood, man, with Monster Squad. And I remember, yeah. personally, I saw, saw it in 1988 when it hit home video. And it was the same year Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors hit home video. And those were the two movies yeah. that kind of wrapped the horror genre's arms around us. But it was the Monster Squad that we went and rented the extra VCR and you linked them together and you bootlegged the tape and you watched yeah. it over and over and over again. And it really became part of the childhood experience, really, was watching that thing over and over again. I'm curious as to what your gateway into the genre was as a viewer. Well, um, you know, really, it's it's interesting because you know when you start out in this business super early, <laughs> like you're telling, like you already you already did it, you already explained it for me a little bit uh, with that awesome intro. But you kind of around movies, you you see them, so therefore you're interested and you get to watch them on TV. But remember, this is the '70s and early '80s when I was a kid, and there wasn't a lot of there was no cable, there's no internet, there's no streaming services. There wasn't even your local video store. There was just whatever was on late night or on Saturday afternoon matinees on like the local channels, right? I got to see some cool stuff. Growing up as a horror kid sort of actually took a side seat. I was really a sci-fi kid or either like a Cold War adventure spy movie kid because I was my dad's son. So that was his stuff. But horror was super cool. And everybody, I'll start off, I'll get it out of the way. Everybody asks, what's what's the most terrifying horror movie I've ever seen? The answer is The Wizard of Oz. It's absolutely a horror movie. But I, you know, I think remember, you know, seeing things like The Exorcist when I was probably too young to see The Exorcist and and learn about how things like religion and scary and monsters and evilness comes in together. Uh, just kind of piqued your interest. And then you see weird stuff that's on the other side of the spectrum, like the original I spit on your grave or something, which I don't know what category that is. I think that's just like the original revenge movie and it, and rightly so, but it's categorized as horror. And then you, you kind of see the classics. I mean, obviously on Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoon matinees on channel nine in LA, you know, you'd see old Frankenstein movies or Dracula movies and you kind of watch them, you absorb them. But when you're really little, you don't get them because they're super old and they're not fun and they're not flashy. Uh, but then you learn to, to really rewatch them and, and, and kind of get something out of it. I've always been a friend of a uh, fan of creature from the black lagoon. That's my guy. You know, any old, you know, the classic that's him. That's the guy, the original. It's awesome. Growing up as a teenager and, you know, 10, 12, 14, 15, we're in the eighties now. And you've got those new classics, like the new slasher movies and Friday the 13th and Halloween and Freddie. And I think Freddy Krueger was probably the most terrifying villain for me at that time, because he didn't, he only existed in your mind, which was terrifying. <laughs> Tell us how you first ended up signing up for the monster squad. You know, it was honestly just, um, you know, it, it being on so much television and film going forward, you're just part of that fortunate small percentage of the kids in the business at the time that's going to do a lot of the auditions and a lot of the work. And it was just a regular kind of casting call for, you know, a certain role, you know, whatever, a Wednesday afternoon in August of 86 or something like that. And you may know, some people know, your listeners may or may not know, I auditioned for the role of Rudy. You know, I, I never auditioned for the role of Sean. I think it's because my body of work immediately preceding or during this time was a couple of TV shows and stuff where, you know, I was the cool kid with the great clothes and awesome hair and a lot of hair product. And I mean, I had awesome hair. I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> not so much now. I was like, it's okay, but it's not awesome. Like it used to be. And it was just sort of a natural thing to get, you know, 
get the breakdowns from the studio and the casting and your agent puts you to, it's like, Hey, go, you know, show up here at this time and read for this role. And then a couple of weeks later, you get that call and they say, you cast, you know, you got cast in that movie you read for. And usually the first question is which one, because you're reading for multiple stuff daily or weekly, you know, at, at that time. And they said that that big monster movie, you know, the stuff I was like, Oh, awesome. And like, yeah, but you didn't get the role you read for. And that's usually bad news. You know, that's usually a, you know, it's usually a lesser part or a different one. And they're like, no, it's actually good news. You got cast as the lead. And I'm like, no, Rudy's the cool character. <laughs> I read the script. He's the one that's badass and gets to kill more monsters. But, uh, and that was all the audition scenes that I remembered. But, you know, I was just talking about it uh, earlier this morning about kind of the same thing. I, for some reason, you know, you just got to be appreciative and thankful that somebody in the room I don't know if it was the casting director, Penny Perry, or if it was Fred or Shane or Peter Himes or whoever was in the room during those auditions and screen tests, you know, saw beyond the leather jacket and the gel in the hair and said, what if we take all that stuff off that kid, give him a terrible haircut and put some, you know, dorky clothes on him and maybe it, could he be Sean? And it wasn't like I came back in and went through the process again. I, I just got cold cast, you know, as Sean. And when you think back at that, that, that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, someone saw, you know, something and, you know, maybe it was Fred, maybe it was Penny to see beyond, you know, kind of, kind of that kind of tunnel vision of the kids in the room for the roles. And, you know, it, it worked out great. Could I have played Rudy? I would have loved to have played Rudy. He's an awesome character. I would have been cool and it would have been a little campier probably. Um, but I know why I'm not Rudy because Ryan Lambert came in there and absolutely murdered that audition and became Rudy in that moment and brought something that I don't think anybody else would have. And that's why he's awesome in that role. Do you remember the scene you auditioned for, for Rudy? It's the, in the treehouse with Patrick, have you been dorked? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> right. uh, yes, I, uh, I, I've, yes, I remember that. To the degree of which you have or have not at some point in time. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> Did Rudy actually smoke? So this is one of the reasons Ryan <laughs> nailed the audition is he came in and sat down and, you know, he looks cool anyway. And um, I, I think Shane smoked at the time and there was like a pack of camels in his pocket or something. And this is Ryan's story. I'm just relaying it. And he, and he says, can I uh, bum one of those? And everybody in the room, I think, was like, what? Like, you can't give this kid a cigarette. He's like 14. <laughs> yeah. And um, Shane was like, do it. And Shane lit it up, did the scene, nailed it, became Rudy. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> during, oh, wow. during the movie, those are, um, you can ask Ryan at some point in time if they, if they got switched out, but they were uh, clove cigarettes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. We always wondered that, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about it the other day, like people who smoke like crazy in movies, clove, yeah, either clove or, or uh, they're like cabbage or vegetable cigarettes, you know, to that kill still give this smoke effect. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. You can ask Ryan. I'll let him yeah. answer if they actually That's swap those fascinating. out. Or he did. Unbeknownst. <laughs> right, right, right. So the one thing we mentioned, you, you know, you mentioned getting dorked and all that stuff. Well, the dialogue was perfectly nailed in the script and the kids talk like real kids, warts and all. But at the same time, it really developed its own vernacular. People didn't have sex. They were dorked. People had nards. Phoebe was a phoebe. How did they get that just right? Did you guys have any input into that whatsoever? No, I think all of that was on the page. And what that is, is that's coming out of Shane and Fred. 
you know, a lot of people compare, you know, kind of kids ensemble or kids adventure movies of that time with other ones. And I think this is the only one that was written by individuals that weren't too far removed from being kids. Look at the writers of other, you know, kind of kids adventure movies. They're usually like 38 or 49 year old dudes that are, you know, like, what was funny back when I was a kid? Yeah, let's put that on page 11, you know, and that it comes across as camp and the kids are getting talked down to. And, you know, cause there's a lot of bias in there a lot of times with whoever you're writing dialogue for, but Fred and Shane were like mid twenties and they weren't that much. They honestly weren't that much older than us. They really weren't. And I think that that worked. And I think a lot of the stuff came from their, they didn't grow up together. You know, they met each other in college and they grew up in two completely different places. Uh, and I think it was a kind of a blend of all that and a kind of their imaginative adventures and their creative minds. I know Nards is a Shane thing. I got that answered years ago and who I had never heard the word before, but it, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's fascinating to see how many, you know, movies have, you know, great lines of dialogue that become memorable or maybe iconic if you're lucky and I'll be back and, you know, whatever you want to pick. But Monster Squad's got a handful of stuff that people really dig. And it became part of it. Once they saw it, it became the lexicon in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, Nards became a thing. And I had never seen, heard, or said that word in my life. And, you know, there's actually a, an interesting kind of story that, uh, you know, I, I kind of understand deeper now. And it, it again, it's about Ryan. I feel like I'm talking about Ryan all day. But I learned something from a story, another story of Ryan's that he tells when he was doing his wardrobe fitting for Rudy. And he's there with the costumer and he's putting on multiple leather jackets and he gets one on and she goes, Oh, I think that's it. That's, that's the one. And Ryan explains it as, yeah, I don't know. I just, this isn't like, I don't, this isn't comfortable. Like, I don't think I would wear this. Like, this isn't me. And she goes, well, that's a good thing. This is the costumer saying this, which goes to show that we didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> she says, well, that's okay because you're not playing you. Uh-huh. And Ryan took that as he was like, oh, wait a minute. There's something going on here. Now I understand this is like, this is like a movie. This is like, we're making movies here. And I think that helped him, you know, translate into what he was trying to do. And I have a similar story with the line, because I'm the first one that says Nards and I say, kick him in the Nards. And I saw it on the page and I'm a cool kid from the Valley in LA, you know, born and raised. And I'm like, what is this? What is this word? Like, I don't, I I think I wouldn't say this word. Like, oh my God, this is, I don't, I've never heard this. Like no one says this guys, come on. And that was in my mind and internal monologue. And I remember having a conversation with Fred on, on that day so I was like, Hey, can I like, can we, can I say something else here? Cause I don't know what nards are. Like I've never, I, I feel weird or I feel lame saying it. Like I would never say that. And Fred answered the question almost in the same way as the costumer, but, but deftly did it differently. And, and I think it was something to the effect of, well, maybe we can like it, but let's, let's keep it as it is in the script for now and just try it that way a few times. And what he was really saying is he's like, that's okay if you're uncomfortable saying this word because 
you're not playing you. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's that's a fantastic learning experience that I think we both learned, you know, not, you know, not in, you know, almost in the in this, you know, within a few weeks. And I didn't really realize that at the moment. I realized it a lot later. Uh, and thankfully that happened because um, one, I never would have had a title for a documentary. And then two, um, you know, it wouldn't have been in everybody's vocabulary. Now. Right. And on t-shirts and posters and whatever else. It's incredible. Was there ever any alternate takes where you said kick him in the nutsack or kick him I, in the... I don't I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. I, th- I think I would have settled as a cool kid. Like, I was like, can I just say nads? Like, I don't know what nards are. Uh, but, it, you know, what's, again, what's fascinating is that was the right call. And uh, if, I, if I had changed it or been obstinate about it, I mean, I don't know why I would have. That would have been the wrong answer. And I'm, I'm glad it worked out because, you know, fast forward... 30 years. And, uh, you know, it, it has been said in other movies and other TV shows, uh, and it wouldn't have been if it wasn't in this movie. And, um, it, you know, one of my favorite people in the world is, you know, Adam F Goldberg, who is in the documentary, luckily for us. And, uh, he explains how that line kind of changed his life. And he thought it was so out of bounds, funny as a kid, then he grows up and becomes a writer and a showrunner and, you know, has these huge networks that he writes it and everything that he does. And, you know, it's, it, it's one of my favorite bits in the documentary where unbeknownst to us, he had his editor of the Goldbergs uh, do a supercut of like the last two seasons uh, that every, anytime anybody in the show said the word Nard. Yeah, it was great. And part of the doc. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I, it's, you don't get, you can't plan for that. That was just something that he gifted us and it's absolute documentary gold. <laughs> I know we were talking about costuming and I love props and I just wanted to know what you kept from the production and where everything ended up that you didn't keep. Do you know where it all is? I know where some of the awesome stuff is, uh, you know, where to start. Let's start with the stuff that I don't have. Ashley kept scraps. Oh, really? For wow. for years. And then apparently one time she was a teenager or something, which is, you know, this is 10 years later or so she had it and they were moving or something and her mom was packing stuff up and apparently, you know, said like, you don't need these anymore. Like you're in high school or something. And uh, scraps got scraps got tossed. Um, no. So Scraps is out there somewhere. He's either in a landfill or in a thrift store. The one that was used on camera. But some fans have actually sourced that plush and figured out what it is and they know what it is. So it's kind of awesome. That's wild. Um, yeah. And I think I think Ashley's like, I, I would totally still like to have Scraps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you damn right. You'd <laughs> like to have Scraps. I think, you know, it's a great story way back. You know, this movie was dead for 20 years and we had a cast reunion screening in, in Austin, Texas at the Alamo Draft House in 2006. And a kid named Eric Vespi, who was, you know, the film critic and writer at the time, along with, you know, the Alamo folks, you know, put together the screening that launched the resurgence. And we didn't know what that was going to be. And, you know, think it was going to be as iconic an event as it was. And boy, were we wrong. But Fred Decker brought one of the amulets and actually gave it to Eric Vespi. Wow. So Eric Vespi owns uh, the amulet. Uh, which is pretty awesome because he's brought it to me and we've used it in, in in events and it's in the documentary a little bit. And then to kind of my stuff, aside from my things, I actually, I was like really into archery uh, and stuff at, at, during that time for a number of years. 
And so I got Rudy's bow. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, my gosh. Nice. So uh, I had Rudy's bow for, I mean, honestly, broken down, you know, broken. You, know, you can take it apart, break it down. And, um, you know, it, it was in a box for like 20 something years, like 25 years. And I decided I was like, we were doing all these appearances and stuff. And I was like, this needs to be out, like seeing the daylight. And uh, I actually brought it to a screening in San Francisco where Ryan was at the time. And like, I gave it to Ryan in front of the theater and everybody went batshit crazy and wanted to take photos with the bow. And then what's funny is Ryan was like, I can't take this home on the train. <laughs> like, I can't, yeah. like, this isn't work. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's leave it at my friend's house, Patrick, uh, who was living uh, down the road at the time. I said, but you got to come and get it like this weekend. He's like, okay, next time I'm on this slide, I'll come and get it. And it stayed at my friend Patrick's house, not the Patrick, but a different Patrick for like a year and a half. <laughs> And Patrick ended up moving to Montana. So the bow went to Montana. Uh, we, we, we eventually ended up getting it back. And, but there was an interim time where, um, oh, and thank you for mentioning short ends. Cause it's one of my favorite things that, uh, that, that I, that we brought Ryan in and got to co-host with. But during that time, I was like, uh, we should do a show. Cause we had our, we had our own podcast. Ryan and I did a podcast, but we just goofed off a bunch and had some guests for about a year. And I said, this is, uh, we need to do a show where we rent like a van and you and I drive to Montana to go get the bow. Oh, that, that would be oh. great. And we should just put that on like, it would have been amazing. And then like along the way, we pick up like random, not random people, it's scheduled, but you know, have like, all of a sudden there's like, you know, a famous wrestler in like, <laughs> you know, Oklahoma City that, that we run into so or something. <laughs> and so it would have been really fun. And I thought it was a great idea, but, you know, things like that take time. We just ended up doing it. And, uh, but we got the bow and it went back in a box again. And I was like, this doesn't need to be in, in, in a box. And Ryan's like, I don't really want to put on my walls. Like, what are we going to do with it? And so our good friend, Ciro Nielli, who you may or may not know, who's a fantastic animator and, and artist, he's the EP of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, yeah. the show and a bunch of other stuff. He's in the documentary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, had just bought a house out in the valley, out in, you know, sort of my old neck of the woods and um, has this amazing collectibles room. Ryan and I would go over there, like he'd had like pool parties and watch movies on 16 millimeter. And uh, we came over one day and said, this is on temporary loan from the squad. This should go in your collectibles room. And here's Rudy's bow. And so, uh, you know, it's like, it doesn't need to be in a box. It needs to be where people can enjoy stuff like that. And um so he made like a plaque for it and hung it up and, you know, dead bolted it to the, <laughs> to the wall and uh, nobody can get it and whatever is kind of hanging up in this amazing kind of collection of his. And, you know, I, I, I kind of think that's, that's pretty cool. That's and amazing. That's so cool. The final line, it's like your question with me. I have, I have a lot of great, cool production stuff and like parking passes and script note and, you know, the script and, and, and things that are kind of obscure. But um, the coolest thing I have, I have my entire wardrobe. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. Which which also lived in a box for a couple of decades, but we brought it out and I put it on a mannequin twice when I rebuilt the treehouse at two events. And, you know, one was at the Egyptian for Beyond Fest and the other was at the Alamo Draft House for the 30th anniversary party during Fantastic Fest. And that was an amazing event and had this big display and Eric brought the amulet and we lit it up in a box. And so I, I, I have the whole wardrobe, including the 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 jeans that apparently shrank over years. There was no way I was that short. Um, but um, you know, the Stan Smiths and the Adidas jacket and the yellow shirt, even the rugby shirt 
and uh, of course the original Stephen King rules t-shirt. That's amazing, oh which gosh. you get to show people in the dock, and they just yeah. freak the fuck out. It's the best. Yeah, that's, that's, a, best. that's a fun bit at the end because uh, honestly, that was um, besides that one to come up before it was almost at the same time that t-shirt and i had been in a plastic bag in a plastic bin in a garage uh for 30 years that thank god he hadn't come out because you know i didn't want i was like that's something that should be somewhere on display and yeah i was like people need to see this now but then i got worried about traveling around i didn't want to travel with it too much sure sure and um but in the doc, that was a cool thing. And I said, this is going to be cool. I want to see people's reactions if they actually see the Stephen King. Oh, shirt. And wow. So that we did that little tidbit of, uh, you know, at the end, it's sort of like, you know, BTS stuff. And my man, Wes Caldwell, you know, I came into the production office one day. He's like, I made something. And I said, what? And he's like, I don't know if you're going to like it. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I cut together like three minutes of something. You know, I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but I just wanted to show it to you. And I was like, show me. So he hits play on his, on his deck. And I saw that bit that he had cut together. Uh, Cause it, it got to be funny when we we're on the road and, and doing the interviews with the crew. Cause we, we spent so much time together and I did the exact same thing every time with the people. And that's what was funny. Cause they were, they were kind of poking fun at me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why he's like, I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but I wanted to give everybody kind of like the equal experience. And I was kind of, you know, lame about it. And uh, Wes cut together that great bit. And I was like, Wes, this is, fantastic but where are we going to put it in the movie and he's like oh i don't know where we were going to put it in the movie. i was like oh no this is going in the movie and i was like i i think you know it do, does it fit you know we didn't have anything leading contextually into like you know props or anything and i was like i think this is an in credit thing that would absolutely kill and uh, i love it and that that's all that's all my man wes what about dracula's car where did that thing end up you know, people knew that. I think uh, so. Uh, it was a stunt car, okay. you know, like a like a prop car uh, for years, and it was at someone's lot. And you know, they, they kind of dressed it up with the kind of like the spiky stuff and the skull and all that. And it was around for a while. I think someone knew where it was for years. I don't. I, I'm not quite sure. But I always thought that would be kind of cool to ride around in or like having an event. Uh, but it was, I, I think it was gone or, you know, hard to, uh, or, or, you know, the skull was taken off and that grill work was used in, in, you know, in another movie, cause it's just a working vehicle and wasn't a piece of iconography that, you know, people realized it was. Yeah. Yeah. As what happens with all this stuff. Well, a couple of like super geeky questions about just the production of the film and what you might remember of it. So the centerpiece of the whole film, obviously is a tree house, the perfect every kid's dream treehouse. We see both an exterior and an interior. Are they one and the same? Where was that thing constructed? Were you inside a soundstage? What was that? All of the interiors was, uh, you know, sort of an exact replica of the exterior one. That was on a soundstage at Culver Studios, which is over, you know, Culver City. That's where we did all of our kind of on stage stuff. The actual treehouse outside was actually in a tree about 20 something feet up out in this oak tree over a little thing of water out in Santa Clarita, which is now Stevenson's ranch. You know, so it's up yeah. on that side where we used to shoot a lot of TV shows and a lot of uh, movies. I've done a ton of stuff out there, commercials and that episode of the twilight zone. We shot out there a bunch of product commercials and the treehouse stuff in monster squad. Uh, the one that actually blew up, uh, you know, was, was out there. So a bunch of cool dudes went up there and actually built a damn tree house in a tree. I went up in it once and Ryan went up in it once to do that one window scene. 
but we weren't we were like we weren't supposed to go up in it because that's a you know the no kids are climbing up twenty feet in the air to do this thing. And we, we we ended up doing it you know once each you know for a shot, um, and they used Ryan's, but uh, the you know kind of backyard stuff was on Warner Ranch, uh, you know on the uh, Warner Brothers Ranch. Our backyard was actually not matching of the house of the front yard. Cause if you see, you know, there's one kind of like neighborhood street on the ranch and they always go in a, in kind of a slow curve so you can do camera angles and never see the same kind of stuff. And you can turn to the next house and be in a whole other world. Uh, but that's also like the, the street on the Warner's ranch where the lethal weapon house is where the house for the middle, the great sitcom, the middle, that's like almost like right next door to the, like Sean Crenshaw's front door, but the exterior was over on by the lethal weapon house. And, you know, we're looking into like the back of a stage wall, you know, where we're pretending to look at Frankenstein or, or, you know, by the, by the lake and all that. So that's just kind of match cutting stuff to, uh, to different locations. How did they do that scene where you're sitting on the rooftop overlooking the drive-in theater? That's what's cool. I had a great conversation about this not too long ago. Uh, that was on a stage, you know, so they built the roof of a house, you know, it's just sort of like a frame and put shingles on it and build. I mean, this, this is when craftsmen and, and, and artisans and, you know, union, you know, studio guys make really rad shit. Right. You know, that was a green like, screen. Oh, let's just put a house on yeah. the stage. Yeah. And, and then over the shoulder type of thing, that was actually, it was old technology, but still used at the time that the drive-in movie theater, which was not the normal drive-in movie. I think it was like this, masterpiece of like cool art deco, you know, kind of cinema drive-in thing was really cool, but that was actually a matte painting. Wow. Yeah. So that was actually a, you know, a giant canvas matte painting and actually know the matte artist. His name was Matt and he used to shoot archery. So I knew as well. That was an old skill, you know, that was used in big backdrops for big studio movies since the dawn of cinema. And this was probably, you know, the last year or the next year that, you know, matte artists had jobs. Because uh, they were actually they actually painted it on giant you know canvas pieces, and then the technology, the visual effects to put the movie inside of the square, you know that was kind of I don't want to say cutting edge, but it was you know fairly new, you know to see an image moving in. I mean they've been doing that since the fifties, but put the image in on matte painting to make it look like yeah, a, make uh, it look alive. an actual environment. The Boo Crew will be right. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Back. The night of the fall is finally here. For Chris, Cindy, and JC, it's going to be the best night of their lives. But tonight is also the night of the creeps. I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. Night of the creeps. If you scream, you're dead. (laughs) 
What about 666 Shadowbrook Road, that interior house where you guys have a lot of fun activity and you pull the hand and you fall down the trap and it's amazing. The interior was all on a, on a stage. It was all set build. Wow. You know, again, so you're seeing all of this amazing set build, which just takes, you know, weeks and weeks and tons of money and all this skill of how to build something like that based off of some production designer and art departments, you know, kind of renderings. And then these craftsmen get together and build some cool stuff. All of the interior was on a stage. The exterior bit was actually, I believe, on the universal back lot, which had, you know, kind of like a, uh, a little cul-de-sac of these big old kind of mansion-y looking plantation homes like that. And, um, you know, they dress it up all spooky and, and you walk into the, you know, the front door of that. And then when you pulled the thing and you fell down the trap, what is it just a mattress down there? Were you guys all actually doing that stunt? We actually did. You know, I forget about that being a stunt that we did because it's technically a stunt. That was actually on a stage uh, with a real trap door that's not triggered by that, but actually triggered by a guy underneath. And uh, you fall onto, uh, there's actually cardboard boxes. Okay. Like cardboard boxes with a little bit of foam on top and it just kind of catches your fall. And I mean, we didn't fall far, you know, we, we fell far enough to, you know, clear. And yeah, that was kind of, that's a little apprehensive. You're like, I've never been in a trap door before. <laughs> How is it? And you really get like one or two takes. So yeah. it's like, and you know, so the look of us actually falling through with, we were actually fell through a trap door. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And wow. then another question about, it's so funny as this movie replays in my head, all these things that I've always wanted to know all these years when Frankenstein, you, you kiddingly, you know, tap Frankenstein on the shoulder, right? No, the Frankenstein's monster. And then he whaps you and you go flying. Was that, yeah, yeah. was that, was that something you had to rehearse to do carefully? Was there a stunt kid who was or a stunt person? No, that was just me being me. I mean, I used to goof around and I've always wanted to be a stunt man and, you know, I've always been athletic and coordinated and, and able to do that and kind of tied into all this a couple of years prior to monster squad, I got to do a show that a lot of people remember or don't remember called circus of the stars that used to be on every year where celebrities and people on TV shows used to do circus acts. And uh, so from that time on, I met all the circus people. And then, you know, Bob Yerkes, who is this actually famous stuntman, one of the most, you know, icons in the industry. And he's actually in Monster Squad and 7,000 other big films. But, um, you know, I just, I used to goof around my backyard and I, and jump off the, you know, refrigerator under the couch and bounce off and all that stuff, you know, as a kid. So uh, that was, that was the easy part. (laughs) Falling down and selling it off. Like he hit me harder than it was. That was, that was easy. So when was the very first time you remember seeing the completed film and what did you think? I honestly think the first time I saw the completed film was maybe at the first screening in Westwood. We did, a, we did a couple of them and then we had the big one that preceded the big kind of, you know, marketing party at the Hard Rock Cafe. But I think prior to that, it was earlier, like early summer. It came out in August and I think we saw it, you know, just a month or two before that, you know, completed for the first time. We had seen some scenes going in doing, you know, uh, ADR and, and, and some looping and things where you have to go redo some dialogue or some scenes, you know, audio stuff, uh, but never saw the whole thing until we actually sat down at, at one of the preview screenings, not too far ahead of the actual release. What were your feelings when you saw it? You know, I, I think it's, I remember the... I just remember going that we, we did so much stuff and then like, that's it. Like it's there. And that turned out pretty cool. Or I hate the sound of my voice or boy, could I be a little screechier in that scene or something? Cause you know, when you're first watching something like that, you watch yourself to either be really, really 
you know, annoyed or frustrated or embarrassed or humiliated. And then other times like, oh, I did that pretty cool. And then you watch it more and more and you see other things. And and it's just, it was a lot to absorb because that movie's got a lot cram packed in it. Yeah. And then that short runtime, I think it's like under an hour 30 and you get so much plot development so quick and you, you meet all the monsters quick, you meet all the kids quick, you know, it's intense. And I think that's part of the, also part of the excitement and joy of watching it. It's such a well-crafted story. The way it's put together, it sucks you right in. It certainly doesn't drag once it starts, it's going and then doesn't end until it's over and, uh, or it doesn't stop until it's over. And that's that's again i think you're right there you know it's part of the charm of why it works but you know i always lament you know because there were so many pages that we that were in the script that didn't get shot or we did that are deleted or things in the original drafts that were about us as the kids and extra scenes that aren't there anymore that i always thought were missing because it really you know we had some build up in character development with these kids of just how knowledgeable they are about the stuff that they're into and that's the setup to being they're the only ones that can save the world when it comes down to it. But, you know, all of that kind of got trimmed down and you have to get that kind of in between the spaces as you go. And uh, it still works. I just know what's not there sometimes. And some of it's kind of cool. And, you know, you kind of miss not having a couple extra scenes. As the film got more momentum, were there any talks about sequels or spinoffs or, you know, Was there any talks of this at the beginning, like right when you guys wrapped? Were there any ideas out there? At the time. Mm. Yes. You're talking about at the time. At the Uh, time and then later. Yeah, you are, uh, you know, you're geared up. I mean, you you already kind of contractually signed up for, you know, any sequels or anything, marketing, action figures, you know, all that stuff. You know, if the movie's a hit, then all that's going to happen. And then when your movie is not a box office success, none of that happens. And, you know, so that was dead on arrival, you know, in, you know, mid August and you're just like, okay, moving on. Uh, You know, Stewie's like, well, that's not happening. So whatever, what's next. And, you know, that, that, that kind of makes a a dent, you know, that's, I, I think it's unfortunate. It's a, it's a much longer story, but I think, you know, today it's different. It's much different for films and filmmakers that their their things have different, obviously different platforms and different avenues to be seen because we have so much access to you know good and bad content. But there's a little bit more breathing room, a little bit more kind of word of mouth, or you know some something doesn't have to succeed on day one to find a foothold and, and get an audience. Back in the '80s, in 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 theatrical film release, you had 48 to 72 hours, and if it didn't work, you were done, and that was it. There was no you know, word of mouth type thing and, you know, theater chains and studios were not going to keep pushing it and spend money on leaving something in there in case, you know, someone's going to go tell their friends to come back next weekend. If it doesn't happen on an opening weekend, then you're screwed. And I think that's really unfair to a lot of movies and mostly to filmmakers and definitely to someone like Fred Decker, who after makes one more movie goes to direct director jail. And I think it's very unfair. And you know, if Monster Squad was allowed, I think this isn't, you know, being bitter after the fact, but I think it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. If it had been allowed to have a little seasoning or word of mouth or a different marketing campaign or a different release time or a number of different things, a different rating, uh, would it have been different? And the only thing that it really might have changed 
there might have been sequels and action figures or a Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, but Fred Decker would have been able to, you know, make more stuff. And I think we're at a loss for that. You know, it's, it's unfortunate for us as well. It's unfair. You know, now it's a little bit different because I, you know, the handful of kids that did see it in the movie theater went home and went, holy crap, I just saw a rad movie and like went next door to their buddy and said, Joey, you got to come with me. I'm going next Saturday to see this awesome movie. You got to come with me. And they go and it's not there. And, you know, that happened over and over again. And luckily, you know, a year later, HBO is this, you know, kind of awesome force that allows something to take a foothold. And then it found another home at the local video store. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, probably 90% of the original fans saw it for the first time. Did you ever think of sequel ideas yourself, like where another story would go? They were trying to remake this movie, like they were rebooting it. Uh, it was like Michael Bay was tied to it at one point. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Rob Cohen, who was actually a producer on Monster Squad, and um, Michael Bay's company were were trying to figure it out, and it didn't happen. And um, because the Dark Universe just got announced right when they were trying to figure it out, and they were like, "Well, there's no reason to do this if they're doing this Dark Universe." And then so that died, and then the Dark Universe died, and all's right in the world. And um, but now they're doing the Dark Universe right. They're giving it. So smaller boxes to work in, giving it to actual good storytellers to make these awesome stories. And like Lee Wannell hammered it with Invisible Man, right? And then COVID, then COVID hit and killed that release. (sighs) Sequel story. I I, I think there's so, I think there's a ton to do, not just sequel wise. My favorite thing that I would love to see is stuff prior to our story. Because Dracula has been walking around for a hundred years waiting for the timing. What has he been doing? What's he involved in? Like, what did he see? What was he, what was he, uh, you know, uh, an instrumental part of, you know, you know, evil in the world or doing this or just being, you know, a jerk. Cause he's, he can't really do anything, but be a jerk, you know, until the balance, you know, the time comes out every hundred years. And that's what he's been waiting around for. That's why I think Duncan plays Dracula so arch in the monster squad. And he's not, he doesn't care. He's singular focused about destroying this balance and he's like, I've been walking around for a hundred years waiting for this moment. And there's a bunch of kids in my way. I don't care. I'm just going to blow them up in a treehouse." And he thinks he does. So I think there's some great stories in it. It could go much deeper in meta. And like people have talked about that. There's a connection between scary German guy and Dracula, you know, from back in the thirties and forties, you know, being in Eastern Europe and, and Germany and things like this. And uh, that's fascinating you don't ever know, maybe there's sort of like this proto, you know, other style priory of Scion of these watchers of the amulet that, you know, protect, you know, the balance and maybe scary German guy was one of them. And then, so he lives in the neighborhood where the amulet's near. And so he ends up helping us, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, you could really go deep dive into some cool shit there. Uh, and then, you know, there's always sequel stories, which are continuations, right? There is a really cool sequel story, uh, you know, kind of framed out, that's it's on a random laptop on someone's desk. I'm, I'm touching that laptop right now. Um, <laughs> it, it, and it was just something that kind of grew over years when Ryan and Ashley and I were out on the road. And I started to imagine, I started to imagine what a, what a second story would be. And um, it, that's, that's grown over the years and added, to it. it's, it's actually it's actually pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really neat. And, and it honors the original. 
it honors the original fan base and gives, you know, it's not just a straight sequel spoon fed what you want. It really honors what the first one was, which, you know, is kind of bringing the the classic into the modern. Uh, it does that again, you know, with, with the story. Uh, and it's just kind of neat. I, I just really like it. And then, you know, it's, it's, you know, whatever, if there's ever a sequel or continue, you know, it's gotta be a passing of the torch type thing and, and new generation. And, um, it's, it's, it's a fun kind of mental exercise to kind of create something like that, but the actual thoughts of sequels and all that, it's been asked many times, almost done a couple of times, I think, or got, you know, close to being kind of like taken to step two, uh, but it's always been a rights issue. Monster Squad has always had issues with actually who owns the rights to this movie. And that started back in the like mid nineties uh, cause it just got shuffled around and, you know, four or five different places uh, over time. I remember uh, one of my good friends from high school, Amy Stoyer, ended up working at Aaron Spelling's company for a while. And she goes, we owned that movie for like three years. I was like, Aaron Spelling owned the Monster Squad? Like, it's like, she goes, yeah, it just ends up being in, you know, big blocks and of packages of, you know, rights that shift around and people acquire or get dealt, you know, like cards. And that was interesting about the 2007 DVD when, you know, the resurgence kind of started. At that time, I think and it's come back to them now, but Viacom Paramount had ended up with the actual title rights of it, but Lionsgate had video rights. So it was, everything was always kind of split and jumbled around. And Lionsgate was like, well, let's put out this DVD. It seems to be popular. I'd love to see a cartoon, a cartoon or an animated version. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that'd be so badass. And that's what's cool too. I mean, you could, you could do the pre-stories animated, you could do sequels, you could do continuing stories animated, you could do in between time. You know, there's so much to do because you're the limit is your imagination. And with cool people like Fred and Shane and, you know, other amazing creatives, everybody's always put their two cents into what they want to do. You know, I know Adam F. Goldberg would probably make that movie tomorrow if he had the rights on his desk. You know, he would want to do something because that's just his jam. And, you know, everybody would love to to do it. I've always been leery about it because the right people have to do it. It's be done in a right way, service the right things that should be serviced and you'd be okay. And my problem is that I always, I see it from the original fan base point of view is like make the movie for them. And then you'll get some extra kind of, you know, kind of orbit of people seeing this and then maybe go see the original. Uh, but that's not what studios do. Studios make movies and what's from day one, how can we make the biggest audience possible? Whatever it is we put in this will do. And, you know, then, you know, if this was done 12 years ago and they remade monster squad, they would have just cast it with, you know, six YouTubers and, you know, try to get as many, you know, and they're like, that's not going to work. And uh, you know, but in the studios say, you know, we've got to have the widest audience. What is that now? And you're like, Oh, let's, is Tom Cruise available? Let's put him in it. And um, look, I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. He doesn't need to be in every movie. And I don't think his character in the mummy was like, you could take that character out. That movie was fine. But, you know, that's how studios think, I think, sometimes. And uh, I think we're evolving, you know, creatively and studio green light mind wise of you don't necessarily have to do that. You know, you can get a little bit more creative and put you in a smaller creative box and you get better stories. And I always call that that's what happened, you know, the, the Matrix trilogy. You know, it's you make this kind of amazing original thing and you get a big budget and you make this gigantic movie that becomes wildly successful and then they're like, oh, you're making two more. And here is $7 billion. Go make it. And the movie's not. <laughs> you know, the movies aren't as good as the first one. You went on to develop a continued working relationship with Ryan Lambert, who plays Rudy, 
and he's seen throughout the documentary as well as an important part of the adventure. Talk a bit about forming that friendship. Was it something that was launched during the filming of Monster Squad? Did you know each other before that? I had actually met Ryan about, I don't know, three weeks or four weeks before we actually started shooting. I never, he'd been around. He was fairly, you know, he was on Kids Inc. at the time, but I just never really crossed paths with him. We ended up at a party one night. I remember it clearly where we were, because I have a photo from that night too. And we were like, oh, you're Ryan Lamb. He's like, oh, you're it's like, I think we're doing a movie next month together. He's like, cool. How's it going? And then like we hung out once or twice leading up to that. And then we shot the movie and, uh, you know, Ryan's older than I am by like a year. You know, so I was next in line. And then after the movie, we were pals and, you know, drove around in his car and, you know, got to hang out and, and became friends for years. And then we didn't see each other for about 15, 15 years or so. And um, then we got, you know, once that first cast reunion screening happened, and then we're all on the road going to appearances and conventions together. And, you know, Ryan and I are, uh, we, you know, we had very, we're very similar and, but we're also very, very different. And I think that's what works. And we get together and we just, you know, had a blast reconnecting. And uh, that led to like us hanging out more and uh, working on projects. And like we did a podcast and I created short ends with Ryan and I as the hosts and, you know, luckily Nerdist and, uh, you know, Legendary Digital picked that up. Um, it was just on the wrong channel. Like that, that whole channel didn't work, but I love that show. And uh, Ryan and I had a blast doing it. And I thought we did a good job. And there's other things like, you know, we work on and create stuff and, you know, Ryan's super creative, you know, he's a musician, you know, he's a rock guy and, you know, he's, he's got projects that are awesome. And, you know, I do as well. And, you know, we're, we're still tight. I'll send him a funny photo or, you know, take a selfie of me giving him, giving him the bird or something. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we just, it was funny how we just kind of fell right back into, you know, being comfortable after, you know, a 15 year break. It was at that point during the reunions when that started after the first reunion, even when the idea of you, of not only a documentary, but that you wanted to do the documentary when that happened. Well, I mean, we, no, it was actually a number of years later. It was actually, and that's the whole point is we thought this kind of resurgence and kind of pop of nostalgia and Monster Squad fandom was just sort of a, a, a short-term flash in the pan type thing. We, we certainly didn't not appreciate it. Uh, we thought it was very cool. And we're like, this can't last like this. There's no way this has legs. And uh, so let's just absorb it. Maybe we get a year or two out of this and get to hang out and do a, you know, conventions and all <laughs> We were wrong. <laughs> we were uh, we were very wrong, and um, you know you know gladly so. But it was just sort of not only did it die off, it just got deeper and stronger and bigger. And then we realized there's a second generation of fans, and it really what it was what became the idea of that there's a documentary here is hearing these stories about these fans that connected with a movie for some reason and how this movie and that connection impacted them extremely deeply and how, you know, it even changed some people's lives or, you know, some people tell you stories that saved my life. I'm like, this is, this is wow. What's going on here. This is a little bit more broad and deep than just kind of like, I like the ghostbusters cause it's fun. And we're ghostbusters fans. Got to go busting that's kind of campy and fun. And like, you know, look, fandom's fandom, like people connect with things and they really dig it. I was seeing stories that were more impactful and deeper and visceral and, and, and authentic. And it was deep and those didn't slow down. I kept hearing almost the same stories, but I hear different versions of the same story. And I was like, if this is connecting with people around the world, it on the same level in the same 
strength. And these stories are amazing. I thought their stories were a story. And that's what the documentary is. The documentary is not a making of doc. It's not a where are they now doc. And, and it's certainly not the main, the main goal of this was to not be the, you know, straight, here's a spoonful of nostalgia, fun fan service stuff, which are great in their own spot. It, this was really about a couple things. And it's mostly about the relationship between a film and its fans and the relationship between the fans and a film but then deeper context was, or deeper concept was how something like a film, no matter what film it is, or a song or a book or a piece of art can connect with someone at a certain time in their life and fundamentally affect them some way. And that's what we're trying to tell in Wolfman's Got Narns, all through the lens of Monster Squad fans. Well, what do you think it is that makes it resonate so much? I mean, when I watched it, and for me, it was about... It, it was so empowering and very seldom did you see something. There was stuff like the Goonies and things like that. But this was kids standing up to real things like bullies and then the scariest things of all monsters. And you have that one scene where the Wolfman's turning in the phone booth. I'm going to kill your son. And when you're watching that as a kid, that is so scary. And his transformation is terrifying. And you see these kids that are your age, 12 years old when I watched it, turning around and standing up to them and the kids are being taken seriously. Is that the common thing that people bring up or what do you think it is? I think it's one of them. I think there's a couple different pillars uh, you know, of why this movie connected and, and stayed. And one of them is, is, is that effect. You know, We didn't have a lot of kid-focused uh, you know, movies about kids doing stuff, you know, even kid stuff. We'd have a few when we all liked those movies, right? This had that organically, but it was also set in this fantastical realm of, you know, monsters and darkness and evil. But the movie itself and the characters, it was authentic and it had heart. People saw it as real and not as like a, you know, something that was just kind of like a campy entertainment escape. So I think there's, like I said, there's, there's multiple pillars of, of that create that foundation of why this movie lasted and connected. I, I think it's the heart and authenticity of the characters of the story of the real stuff that was going on in the background or through the thread of the story that a lot of kids connected with. Uh, they connected with the characters themselves. That was really the first thing I was like, where are these people connect? Are they connecting with characters? Cause they would always say, I look, I always wanted to be Rudy, but I was Horace and I, we had a group of friends. Like I was the horse in my group or people come up and go, I was, I was Patrick in my group. And they're like, no, I was you. I was Sean in my group and, you know, in our cul-de-sac and in our bike club. And, and then, you know, there's even, you know, gals coming, but like, I was Phoebe. I wanted to be in the club. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> um, even though it was a bunch of dorky boys and I was smarter than they are. I was like, then you were Phoebe. Absolutely. And I, I think that helped. Then I also think the, you know, the story of Kids going on an adventure wasn't, and the kids in this movie are not talked down to. They are the talk. They are the movie. They are the ones with the voices and they're not taken for granted. They're not played campy. It's played real. And then, so these people are connecting with these authentic, cool characters that they relate to and then seeing them something that has a little bit of danger to it. And it's not a little bit, it's like authentic, real danger. Like people are dying and he, thinks he blows up five kids in a treehouse, And, you know, everybody's like, this is blowing my mind and it's real and it's scary, but it's fun and I enjoy it. And then I think, you know, the effects and I think, you know, the, the, the other things in the story 
there's a family disintegrating, which a lot of people miss, <laughs> you know, in this story. But how many kids that we went to sixth and seventh and eighth grade to <laughs> house was going through the exact same thing when this movie came out? You know, I had a lot of you know kids that parents were you know divorced or should be divorced or getting divorced. And, you know, what a lot of people miss when all they saw it on HBO or VHS is if you don't see this movie in widescreen, you miss about four or five major things on the image. And uh, one of them is the candle blinking out when the mom's putting the clothes away when the storm's coming. The other one is right, right when Dell runs in the house to find me because he's just blown up his partner or Dracula's just blown up his partner in the front yard, you know, which happens all the time in suburbia. When he's running in and out of the house, you don't you don't see the luggage by the door. That's right. She's she's, she's leaving because there was another scene that you don't get this cut that she's coming down the stairs with the luggage and then sets him there and then you know whatever and you know that you know there's a lot of things you miss if you don't see it in, in the right widescreen ratio and you know these are all things that people connected with because it it was fantastical and adventurous but it was all rooted in reality. And then you get, you know, then you get hit in the face with a Holocaust reference and, you know, that all took this me other forever. stuff that's I had no going idea right. what that tattoo meant until way later, which is, it keeps yeah, unpacking But it became itself. a conversation piece and people learned, you know, they're like, yeah. what is that? And they had to turn around and ask their older brother or their parents or something. And then parents are like, uh, <laughs> you know, how do I explain this to my 12 year old? But like you said, you learn about years later and then that harking, you're like, oh, wait, that was in my favorite movie. I understand what this is now. That's terrible. <laughs> and, you know, it starts a new thing. So I think it was, like I said, a, a, a multifaceted reason why a lot of things connected that also gives its leg, its legs. And I think it's a lot of the archetypes of the stories and the characters that will also make it last. Like, I don't think it's over. I think people will still watch monster squad. People have been saying all, you know, all month, we, you know, we've been doing a lot of interviews and conversations and they're like, I think monster, this is not me. This is other people saying monster squad, because of those elements that connect with people and are real and their archetypes of human condition and human experience, we will watch monster squad in another 20 years and it will still connect and still be relevant much more so than some big splashy, you know, kind of movies that we have today because they won't matter and they'll have to be redone and, and revived for that current time. But Monster Squad and stories like that uh, won't need to be, they don't need any help. I don't think that's wrong. I think they may be right. Part of what the documentary does so well as well as, you know, hearing the story of how it gave back to those who watched it as we were talking about. And not only do you have people who are emotionally linked to it, but also professionally, like you, you go and see Mike Hill who was involved in the shape of water. And I'd, I'd also heard that you might shed some light on this in talking to Shane, but I had heard that the reason Ryan Gosling wanted so badly to work on his film, the nice guys was because Shane wrote it and Shane wrote monster squad. I, I think that's right. And um, I've, I, I read that somewhere that Gosling got quoted by saying, I chose nice guys because the guy that is writing and directing this wrote my favorite movie. That's amazing. And, you know, and then I've had uh, a media friend of mine out of Dallas, like interview him and he went, you know, nuts on camera and screamed out Wolfman's Cottonards and I love that movie. And so that started, you know, my uh, hunt for Ryan Gosling to get him in the documentary, which is my one interview we didn't get oh. and uh, that I really wanted. But I actually spoke to him one night at, uh, you know, we were Ryan and I, uh, Lambert and I used to always meet at uh, the one on one coffee shop, you know, in Franklin. And so he was there and like, I, I wasn't even going to go or something. And he was like, he texted me. He's like, dude, Gosling is sitting in the other corner. I was like, 
oh, you got to go say hi. He's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you have to go say hi to Gosling just to, freak you know, out if just to meet him because he's going to, he's going to, he's going to absolutely, you know, spit out his grilled cheese. And, um, <laughs> I was like, okay, you know what? I'm on my way. So I got there and I just, I just straight up busted into his conversation. He was there with a friend and I apologized to the friend. I don't even know who it was. And I just, I just, you know, introduced myself and leaned him and, you know, it's, it, he didn't recognize at the beginning, but uh, you know, I, I opened with Shane Black and, and then he realized who I was and I introduced myself and, you know, we kind of shot the shit for a little bit and uh, he was really excited. And then I went over and met Ryan. We had a grilled cheese and a tea and uh, we all left. It was fine. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was, it was nice to connect with Gosling because I'm a huge fan. I, I like Gosling. I think he's fantastic. And um, I, I think he's one of the only, there, there's a lot of people that think they're cool right now. And I think Ryan Gosling is one of the only actual cool people out there right now. And he kind of holds that in real life too. So that was, that was kind of, that was kind of rad. Did you ever get into dead man's bones? You know, I, I, what I really wanted was dead man's bones to do the soundtrack for the documentary and use their, and use their songs. And because I don't know if you notice or not notice, but nothing in the documentary or anybody on camera sends a couple celebrities that are setting up some context doesn't have a role or a connection or impact by the monster squad. Even people like Mike Hill, you know, that would have just been a random minute, but he's doing what he does because of the monster. You know, it's, it's an interesting story. And then he gets to work with Shane Mahan to make the amphibian man for shape. This is, it's a crazy full circle story, but even the music in the documentary, which is, which is pretty cool. Most of it is Ryan Lambert's band's music. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, from Kill Moi and Elephone, which are two of his bands in the 90s and 2000s. And um, oh, I just blanked on his name. But uh, while we were on the Alamo tour, the 30th anniversary, uh, we met a fan in Kansas City who had driven up from Oklahoma and, you know, introduced himself and we took photos and signed stuff for him. And, you know, he's like, it's a huge movie. It's a big part of my life. And, I make music and I'd love for you to hear like, uh, you know, you know, I, you know, I said, what do you do? Or something He's like, Oh, I, you know, I make music and I want to be a composer for movies and have a band and stuff. I was like, I'd love to hear your stuff. Will you email me some tracks? He's like, okay. And it was literally the next day we were going to driving to Houston. I can't remember where the next city was at this time. And he emailed it to him and I played it and we're on the road. And I heard one song was kind of dark and Gothic and campy and it was fun. And uh, it kind of reminded me of one of my favorite bands, but with a, you know, kind of like a gothy Halloween kind of campy turn to it. So that's and then the second track. I was like, oh, that's better. That's a, this is kind of neat. This guy's cool. And then the third track like blew my mind because it was like instrumental and like super had these great kind of like lingering long tones and all this. And I was like, what is this? And so I called Henry, who was like traveling in the minivan behind us or something. I was like, dude, you have got to hear this. And then we've got to get in touch with this guy and see if we can use this track. And so Henry, you know, his lead producer, you know, ended up contacting the guy and having a conversation. And he was like, do you have any more stuff? And he's like, uh, yeah. And so he's like, send me a bunch. And, uh, you know, do you mind if we use it? And we, you know, got released and did it. And so an actual fans music that he is, you know, original stuff is, you know, a big part of the documentary. And that one of the things I wanted, you know, I was, I really wanted some dead man bones in there because that sort of fits. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. But you know, the whole, the whole Gosling thing, I think was because I even had to reach out to Shane black to follow up to see if he would, you know, be available. And like, he was, I think he was making like three movies all at once or something. And there was just no time. And I was like, I don't care where he is. I'll fly to him. Let's go. 
And um, it just, you know, it, it just, it, we had so much to do. And that was just, that was sort of like the, the kind of like the white whale of why we were going through. And, um, but look, what we have is fantastic. I think definitely. Well, and, and it's funny. It's coming full circle. Ryan might be the Wolfman with the Nards as apparently he's attached to the new Wolfman movie with uh, Lee, uh, Lee uh, Winnell, as far as I understand. Uh, uh, apparently who is also a monster squad fan. I actually reached out to another guy yesterday, uh, a guy by the name of Mike Flanagan, who wrote and directed Dr. Sleep and the haunting of Hill oh, I've House. I've heard of him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> haunting of Bly Manor is, in the back of the kid's bedroom is a Monster Squad poster. So I actually reached out right. to him yesterday, told him we were talking to you today, and he said, yeah, he specifically put that poster up because Monster Squad was a formative film in his childhood. So he's a huge Okay, so well. you just answered a question, thank you, that I don't know, that everybody's asking me, and I don't know, because I got hit up with the Bly Manor thing, you know, just a bazillion times, sure. you know, for social media, and people calling me like, have you seen Bly Manor? I'm like, no, not yet, don't ruin it. Episode two, there's a Monster Squad poster. I was like, oh, that's pretty rad. But then I was like, hey, I was like, is Mike Flanagan a Monster Squad fan or is the art director of this movie a fan of Monster Squad? They just needed timely stuff that would put in a kid's room at this time. And um, apparently, you you know, if Mike Flanagan is a Monster Squad fan, then thank you, Mike Flanagan. That's pretty badass. And lunch is on me. Let's go. Let's have lunch. <laughs> Hell yeah. That would be a conversation I'd love to be a fly on the wall for. That's Absolutely. amazing. I mean, Mike Flanagan's great. <laughs> so f- finally just wrapping up i mean there are some pretty intense stories that you share with the people in the film as well as experiences that you become a part of some very real shit goes down in what ways did this journey change you you know that's that's a question you think you would get more than i actually do i get it in different contexts but i think what it is is actually how if i had to answer how this process of making this documentary has actually impacted me. I usually get, Hey, we watched the doc and we see how everybody's lives was impacted by monster squad, but we never get your story. And I was like, well, that's on purpose. I'm in this movie way too much, but I didn't want to sit down and do my bloviating about, well, monster squad was cool. And da, da, da. I like, I needed to remove myself from that. I just sort of sit in the chair and I kind of ringmaster some stuff that we need and give the take, but we don't really get that experience. And Phil Noble Jr. from Fangoria Magazine asked me that in front of a crowd one night. He's like, we didn't get your story. What is your, what, how did this movie affect you? And I was like, oh shit. I, damn it, Phil, thanks for (laughs) throwing that one at me in front of an audience of people. And then I realized, I was like, you know, the documentary is my story. Like, I, I think this is how, cause I was so, you know, so, changed you know by these fan interaction that how deep and appreciative this fan base is that those stories affected me that i wanted to tell their story again this documentary is not about us or me or the movie it's about these people that didn't let this movie die and why films or something like films can connect with people so deep all told through their lens and you know i think what it is i think it's an evolving change like how this keeps changing because we did the, the production of the documentary, which was transformative and, and eye-opening and, and, and a revelation of, um, you know, wonder and enthusiasm and pain and sorrow. Uh, so that's a journey that we all went on. And then we see the finished product and we get to go to a film festival seat. And like we film festival for like six and a half months around the world is amazing. And finally get that group theater kind of response. And it was all, you know, 99% fantastic. And people coming up and saying, 
you don't understand what this doc means to me because what this movie means to me. And thank you for making this. I was like, is that what you're hunting for? Like you're being selfish if you're trying to make that movie and get that response. And I don't think we were doing that, but that was the result. But now we finally get to release this movie after a year and a half, you know, delay of, you know, movie industry kind of obstacles. And now it's out and people are seeing it and they're responding to it. And we get to go on awesome things like this and talk about it. So I don't know how it's, I think it's still changing me, but the process, uh, you know, I think it started with that original idea of something different for a documentary and then having a very serendipitous lunch meeting one day and running into Henry and the guys at Pilgrim Media Group on the sidewalk. And if that hadn't happened, like there, there was a 90 second window in the universe. And if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about this. And so that changes you. That's amazing. And then all of the stuff that fell in, it just clicked into place for the year that we shot the doc and then the festival run, and then the delay of like, wait, how, you know, now that changes you a different way, because is this not coming out? Like, what is the, what is, what is happening here? And then getting into this, you know, uh, you know, great situation with Gravitas and, you know, finally getting a release at none other than Halloween weekend. And, you know, and it's just the U.S. Canada release. So we get to go through all this again when the U.K. gets it and Germany gets it and Australia and all the international folks who are lighting me up daily. Like, when is this coming to me? And I'm like, I don't know yet. We're working on that. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I'm working on it. We're, we're trying to get it to you. And uh, so I, that'll be another step that, you know, kind of changes. So it just constantly changes you. And I think really what it is, is the only thing that you can say is, you know, you go back as someone that's a part of something like Monster Squad, which is important to people for whatever reason. And they line up and wait, you know, 10 minutes or, and, and pay money to, to talk to you and take a picture, which I think is insane. And a lot of times I'm like, don't do that. Let's just go outside and talk. And not very many people on the planet, you know, it's a very small number of people get to experience something like that. So you, you kind of have to at least appreciate that and then respect the situation and then being kind of either dumb enough or smart enough to try to put something together like a documentary to express that kind of connection with the fan base or show the appreciation or try to change people's perspective or minds by telling a story about a story, you know, that's something different as well. And, you know, but just, and then, then to see the reaction that we're getting from critical reviews, which are now, you know, still pretty good and the fan, you know, kind of response and, I don't know what you, you know, how many units are, you know, flying off the, you know, kind of digital shelves here. Uh, but, you know, hopefully, you know, the fans are digging it. They're liking it. I don't know if I'm only seeing my own myopic kind of fish in the fish tank kind of view that I have access to, but people are, people are enjoying it. They're connecting, you know, you're hearing that they're, you know, they're connecting with the people that brought their favorite thing to their life again. And, I, I don't know what that means. I'm just glad, you know, I'm either a part of it along for the ride, maybe a conduit for some of it, but it's just fascinating to be a part of something like this dynamic that Monster Squad has with the world. Very well said, wow. man. You got to check out Wolfman's Got Nards. Get it. It's out there and make it a double feature. Watch the Monster Squad again. If you haven't discovered the Monster Squad yet, holy shit, do you have a world world of things in your future. Wow. I'm jealous of you if you haven't seen it yet, actually. You get to watch it for the first time. <laughs> awesome. Andre, thank you so much, man. We so appreciate this. 
No, uh, thanks for having me. This was awesome. Um, you know, anytime, you know, hit me up. I'm, I'm here and we can talk about fun stuff. And definitely we got to have you back. We got to have you into the secret passageway yeah. studio. And oh, you can, to- uh, that's totally happening. Like, the place, man. Man. Yeah. I'm, I'm already, uh, you know, I'm already picking which book to pull. That's awesome. Uh, if that's you awesome. pull the wrong book, if you pull the wrong book, do you go in a trap door? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's, that's a good, uh, that's go. a good idea. Let's, yeah. You gotta I'll come and I'll dig the hole and we'll, we'll yeah. build that. We'll build that. <laughs> That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 186. Special thanks to our guest, Andre Gower. Follow him at Andre Gower Official on Instagram, at Andre Gower on Twitter. Hit up the squaddoc.com and see Wolfman's Got Nards on VOD Now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew singing Sweet Screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at Tales from the Boo Crew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.